let's ask God uh, to help us understand his word. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Uh, true and living God, uh, our creator, uh, we pray now that in your mercy we would know you as you reveal yourself to us in your Son. For to know you in truth is eternal life. Help me to speak your word truly and clearly and help us all to receive it as it is, uh, the word of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, who remembers this? Is that how you think about Jesus saying that the last will be first and the first last? You know, the last displacing, taking the place of those who are first, replacing them. You know, maybe the humble replacing the proud, the poor replacing uh, the rich as Jesus turns the status quo on its head or even Gentile Christians replacing the Jewish nation. Now, I've got to confess that uh, that's the way I kind of been used to thinking about it, uh, but not anymore, because actually what Jesus says is much better than that. When he says the first will be last and the last will be first, Jesus is talking about the first and the last having the same place, being equal in God's kingdom because of God's generous grace. Now, if you're not sure about that or even why it's important, let's listen to the story Jesus told to explain his saying, the story of the workers in the vineyard. And it is told to explain his saying. Did you notice the four? But many who are first will be last, and the last first for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning. Jesus is saying, that because the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God, is like this, like this landowner in his employment practices, the first will be last and the last first. But the parable's not only told to explain Jesus' saying, it's also told to challenge our hearts, to challenge us to give up envious comparing and embrace and rejoice in God's mercy for ourselves and for others. Now, the first eight verses of that, uh, something's happening here or it's not. It's either me. Aha, uh -huh. if I moved it off the mouse. 
Good. Uh, the first eight verses describe a scenario familiar to Jesus' first hearers. It's grape harvest time because 12-hour days were only worked in the harvest. And grape harvest was a time when the owners of vineyard needs lots of, needed lots of extra hands. And we've all been reminded, haven't we, during the pandemic of how labour-intensive harvesting is as our farmers appealed for help to overcome labour shortages. And it was the same then. You needed many hands to bring in the vintage. And labourers were generally hired by the day. they congregate in the town square and those who needed workers would come and hire them. And if no one hired them, they'd go hungry because they were also paid by the day. Now, with a lot of work to do, uh, our landowner started early. He goes out early in the morning and he finds some workers there early and he agrees beforehand on their day's wage. He agrees beforehand on their day's wage, verse 2, one denarius. And that was the going rate, reckoned a fair pay, reckoned fair pay for a day's work. But there is a lot of work to do at harvest and often some urgency. So as the day progresses, he goes back to get more workers at around nine, midday, three in the afternoon. And these workers have less negotiating power because they need the work or face a hungry night. And so they just accept the landowner's promise, verse four, to give them what is right. But the landowner is plainly trying to get as much of the vintage in as possible. So he's even back there at five when there's only about an hour of the working day left. Now, we don't know why those workers are still looking for work at five, whether they're late because they'd had some work of their own to do before coming, or they've been unwell, or they just, well, a bad reputation as workers. We're not told. But he employs them as well, and he sends them into the vineyard. And not long after that, the light starts to fade and the day's work comes to an end. And as God's law commands, the labourers are paid for their day's work before they're sent home. Now, up until this point, Jesus has described events his hearers are familiar with. It's the usual story. But now Jesus introduces a very unusual element, the generosity of the landowners. Uh, when those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarius. He didn't give those hired last one-twelfth of the daily rate, pay them in proportion to the time worked. You see, he doesn't give them what their work deserves. Rather, he gives them what they need, what they need to live on, to buy food for the next day. And while we're not told, the story assumes that every worker hired after those hired at the beginning of the day, also receive a denarius. This is a determined generosity on the part of the landowner. And so as they watched the pay being distributed, you could imagine the hopes of those working in the vineyard from the start of the day for some kind of bonus, you know, beyond the denarius they'd agreed to, kept rising. And so you can also imagine their disappointment. As each one comes to the wages table, and a denarius is pushed across it. No more, no less. They're so indignant about what they see as being unfair that they grumble openly about their treatment, not fearing that the owner might never employ them again. And look at their complaint, verse 12. You made them equal to us. 
those people worked one twelfth of the time we worked there saying and they worked under much better conditions in the cool of the day while we worked through the heat and you made them equal to us. Ensure that they have an outcome for their little work equal to ours for our hard work. Now we have some sympathy with those workers, don't we? We feel it almost immediately. It seems they've been treated unfairly, that it's not a case of equal pay for equal work, something rightly dear to us. And it's easy to see why we do insist on equal pay for equal work. To not reward work equally is to devalue the labours of some and encourage laziness in others. In fact, the owner's actions could be criticised for not even being in his own interest. Surely he wants to encourage and reward effort, not demotivate hard workers by failing to reward their labour. Behind these workers' comparison-based complaining is the thought that in paying the other workers, the owner's rewarding effort, giving people what they've earned. That the only way the owner can relate to his workers is by making sure people get what they deserve, neither more nor less. And as they've worked harder, then they think they should get more than the others. But that's actually not what the owner is doing, isn't it? He's not relating to them on the basis of reward or for effort. What he is doing is generously addressing need, giving people what they need, not what they deserve. And the owner now defends his undeserved generosity. He replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree on a denarius? Takes what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So firstly, in his defence, he says, I haven't wronged you. You agreed a denarius for a day's work was fair and that's what you've received. You've received what you earned. There's no basis for complaining here that you've been treated unfairly. And the owner's generosity has not made them poorer, has it? He hasn't taken what's theirs to give to these others. He has given them theirs. In being generous, the only person who is poorer is himself, the owner. And that's his second point. I'm doing what I want with what is mine. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. And he says... Haven't I got a right to do that, a right to do what I want with what is mine? Now, I know that sometimes in our society we do put limits on what people can do with their private property. You know, you can't paint a heritage-listed building purple, even if you want. And you can't leave all your money to your cat where you have dependent children. There are limits. But generally speaking, we agree. We still think people have a right to do what they want with what is theirs. And so if they want to spend their money on collecting garden gnomes, they can, or giving to promote the playing of the bagpipes, a noble cause, they can, right? The owner is saying he's not accountable to others to use his money in the way they want. He's free to use it as he wills. And he is choosing to be generous, to give to others what they need. Now, how could they fault that? 
And so thirdly, he calls on them to look at their own hearts. Literally, he says, is your eye evil because I'm good? He's saying, the trouble is the way you are looking at things. You're looking at only what you think your rights are, determined to maintain your superiority, the difference, your being more deserving than others, and clothing that self-preoccupation in the language of fairness. You see, they are jealous of the good done to those last, resentful of others becoming their equals, even where it means that there's no loss to them at all. And so the owner asks, has his generosity exposed their stinginess, their meanness of heart? It's a powerful defence. And Jesus concludes, so the last will be first and the first last. In God's kingdom where he rules, he makes the last first and the first last by making them equal giving to all the same reward, what all need. In this case, eternal life. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. He gives them all, everyone who follows him what they need, eternal life. And he does this because he is generous to the undeserving. And he is generous to the undeserving because, like the owner, he chooses to be. He wills to be gracious, to freely give what is his to give, and yes, what only he can give. For that life depends on him and him alone. Remember last week? that rich young man coming up to Jesus and asking, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus showed them that eternal life is impossible for people to obtain by their own efforts. He made that clear saying with people, it, entering the kingdom, obtaining eternal life is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What is impossible for us, God gives freely, generously, because of who he is, gracious and generous. And because it depends on his grace, he gives equally to all who will repent and believe the gospel, life to all. Grace makes the last first and the first last by making them equal in the kingdom in the end, equal heirs of eternal life. But you might say, hasn't Jesus used the language of rewards in this gospel of reward for work, reward for praying in secret or giving even a cup of cold water to a disciple? And even here in Matthew 19, Jesus has spoken of the disciples having thrones. Yes, but they are all rewards of grace. They are, for a start, completely disproportionate to the work done. Why should we think a cup of cold water would earn, deserve an eternal reward or the disciples stumbling following merit a throne? You see, these rewards are part and parcel of the gift of eternal life, which the Lord gives equally to all who repent and believe, 
whether they've followed for a long or short period, had an easy or a hard life. Because membership of the kingdom, participation in the life of the age to come, depends on God's generous grace. And because it depends upon God's generous grace, then all are equal, the first to last and the last first. Now, as you sit there, are you happy with that? Now, of course you say, who could object? Well, let's see. Do you really think it's right, fair, that the thief on the cross who trusted Jesus as he was dying should be equal to the beloved apostle who served the Lord and suffered for decades? Do you think the person who, well, perhaps has wronged you, that rebellious child who caused you so much grief, that immoral spouse who caused so much hurt, should be equal with you if they repent and believe, even if it was in the week, the day of their death, you who who year after year may have both endured their sin and faithfully prayed for them? Or what of the person who may have killed your father and repented while in jail, as was the case with the killer of Nigel Lee's father. Nigel Lee was a theological professor in Queensland and you can read of that murder and of the conversion of his killer in 1994. You can read about it in the Banner of Truth magazine and the link is in the transcript. Now, would you think that killer should be equal to Nigel's father, also a believer, or even to you? who've lived a faithful and law-abiding life? Or what about the believer who seems to have life so easy? Good parents, good health, good family, good employment, who doesn't seem to have been as tested as you with sickness or a hard start to life or the uncertain work which has meant that at times you struggle to put enough food on the table. The believer who may not even be aware of your struggles and what it's cost you to believe and keep believing. Does it seem unfair with their very different life that they should be equal to you? Made equal not because of equal work, but God's gracious generosity of his own free will. Or what about that flaky believer who's lived an inconsistent life, let the team down, but who in the end was trusting the Lord Jesus. Does it seem unfair with their very different life, their weak faith that they should be equal to you who've lived faithfully and consistently a self-denying life of service, made equal not because of equal work, but God's gracious generosity of his own free will. If you're a believer... Are you ever tempted to grumble about that? About unequal lives receiving equal outcomes, the first being last and the last first. But maybe it's not the equal outcome that troubles you because that's in a sense so distant. But the differences now between your life and that of other believers, that God's treatment of you and them seems so unequal, their life easy, yours hard. How can we rejoice in God's gracious generosity and not have a meanness in our soul that resents God's generosity to others, not meet God's kindness with the cry of unfair, not get 
caught up in comparing God's treatment of us with the way he seems to deal with others. Not resent the easiness of some believers' lives when we seem to bear the burden of the day's work and the burning heat because it is always a temptation, isn't it, to compare God's treatment of us with his treatment of others. A comparison that can give way to grumbling, the thought that we've been hard done by God, hard done by God. A comparison that can give way to resentment and even a bitterness that can make you critical of other believers and want to avoid them. That's if you're a believer. Maybe you've been sitting here listening and you know you're not yet a believer in Jesus. And actually, you find this whole equality thing offensive. You think God should treat people differently, that those who try hard to be good should receive good and those who try harder should receive more good and those who don't care live selfish lives, well, they should receive bad. Perhaps you think God's way undermines morality, devalues your efforts. Now, if you're thinking that, or a believer struggling with envious comparing, as we're all tempted to from time to time, the parable gives us three things to always remember. And the first is this. We all rely on God's crazy generosity. You see, the first hearers of this parable would probably have been grateful for the generosity For many of them were day labourers and they knew what it was like to go hungry when they couldn't get work. But they would also have thought it unreal, a crazy generosity that was harming the owner in not distinguishing the hard workers from others and rewarding them more. Harming the other with this costly generosity that would make him uncompetitive and unsustainable. Because there is, isn't there, a cost to being generous. And there's a cost to God's generosity that makes the first last and the last first. We're actually reminded of that in verse 17 here in the passage. You see, the verses after this story go on to speak of our Lord's coming death in Jerusalem. And a bit later in this chapter, he will actually return to that death and speak of it as his life given as a ransom for many. See, the cost of to God of being gracious to sinners like us, of giving us life where we deserve death, is the death of his son. And that is a crazy generosity, isn't it? That will suffer that cost to be generous to those undeserving of his love and kindness. People like us who've rebelled against his just rule, failed to give thanks to him for his good gifts, rejected his good commands. And that cost to God to give us eternal life is a reminder, isn't it, that when it comes to entering the kingdom, to eternal life, it is none and all, none and all, none of us are like the last workers, getting the good they deserve because they've earned it. If we were to get what we deserve, we would get death exclusion from the kingdom, and none of us could complain about that. For we would only be receiving what was just, God giving us to us, God giving to us according to our works. Now, if you're not yet a believer and you're actually offended by God's generosity, 
Your problem is you haven't yet reckoned with your sin and what it deserves. You see, it's, it's not a matter of the good you do being able to balance out the bad. You owe your creator perfect love and trust, perfect obedience. You can never put God in your debt by doing some good thing or even trying hard to live a good life for you already owe him that. That's what he should be receiving all the time, you doing what he commands. In fact, for your disobedience, you owe him your life already and there is nothing you can do to make up that debt to redeem your own life. And in fact, you're thinking that you could bargain with God, pay him off by the occasional good work or that he should be satisfied with your imperfect goodness, with your trying heart. That is sin in itself. All our righteousness, says Isaiah, are like filthy rags. God owes none of us life. None. No one who is saved, no one who is saved gets what they deserve. It's none and all. All get in on the same basis, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. All get in by being forgiven, being spared what we deserve. And so no believer can complain we've been unfairly treated, for we have all been treated with mercy. And that's our starting point in the Christian life, isn't it? Being recipients of God's generous kindness that comes from his freely choosing to love us. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. There he describes the situation of all of us, dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 3, all living according to our fleshly desires, carrying the, out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and by nature children under wrath, as others were also. That's where we all start. But Paul goes on and says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. And he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And it's not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now, that is the way every one of us should understand our lives if we believe the gospel that Christ has died for our sins and God has raised him from the dead with authority to forgive and judge. Every one of us, whatever our experiences, by whatever path God leads us to eternal life, should know ourselves to be loved greatly and to have received a rich mercy. You see, every believer is the recipient of God's crazy generosity, of that gracious kindness that makes us equal heirs of eternal life 
that will raise us up and seat us with Christ in the heavenlies. And that gracious kindness does not falter, for it depends on God, not our performance. The Christian life is grace at the beginning, grace in the middle, grace to the end. And yes, grace forever, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, the immeasurable riches of his grace. Knowing that, you know, knowing that, we have to remember then that God's generosity to others, his different treatment of them in this life, the different journey by which he brings them to the same destination as us, does not rob or wrong us. In Christ, we are no less loved because God's love, his determination to conform other believers to the image of his son works out differently in their lives. Our comparisons of our lives with other believers can so easily be based on the same wrong thinking as those first labourers. That God's treatment is reward for effort, giving people what they've earned. And then we think, I've tried harder, been more regular at church, more prayerful, given more, and so my life should be better than theirs. It's unfair, we think, of God to heal that person or their child and not me or mine, unfair to give them a compliant child, say, when mine's been so much trouble, unfair. But all God's dealings with each believer are based on generous grace, the grace we all rely on, and giving us what we need, not what we deserve. All God's dealings with every one of us who believe are based on a rich and generous mercy, on a love which is determined to bring all believers to the same goal, eternal life. And in Christ, we are all loved with the same love. Each of us can say with Paul, if we believe the gospel Paul preached, each of us can say of Jesus, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, and if you can say that, you know that you cannot be more loved. And knowing that, we must then remember our God knows best of all how to love us, how to bring us to that equal goal, eternal life. Don't I have a right to do what I want with what is mine? Our God is sovereign. He's the almighty creator. He rules all things and people. And he actually does have a right to deal with us, his creatures, as he wills. And he should be trusted to do what he wills with what is his, with each of us. For he loves us. He's faithful and he's wise. See, envious comparing is not just distrust of his love. It's saying God has no right to deal with me as he does, as he chooses to. Grumbling that he is treating you unfairly is, as Isaiah says, like the clay saying to the potter, you have no right to make me like this. You don't know what you're doing. And that is unbelief. You see, believers in Jesus 
know that the God who moulds and shapes our lives is good, that he is generous, gracious in giving his son for us. And we know also in confessing that God has saved the world through the death of his son. We know also that his wisdom is a wisdom that far exceeds ours, working our salvation through a way we would never choose or could imagine, exalting through the humiliation of the cross, saving from death through death, letting sin do its worst to do the best, vindicate his holy rule and exalting his son as Lord over all and the saviour of all who turn to him. And if, if we know that actually God does what is best by ways we would never choose or could imagine for his son, well, we should be able to say that God can do what is best for us through ways we would never choose or imagine for ourselves. God's generous grace that makes the first last and the last first is a generosity not to be grumbled about but rejoiced in. We should rejoice, not just for its work in our own lives, but when we see God's generous grace at work in the lives of others, saving those we may not like, would never choose people who actually may have treated us or thought badly about us. We should rejoice when we see that work in their lives, thinking, this is the grace that saves me. And in seeing it at work in their lives, seeing again how good God is, how gracious, how generous in mercy, the mercy we can rely on. And knowing that the gracious God treats us not according to what we deserve but according to what we need, seeing how rich we have been made by his grace, becoming heirs of eternal life, we should be more than thankful, shouldn't we? We should be people who love grace and who want to show that same generous grace to others, to treat others not according to what they deserve but according to their need. So when we meet poverty, we won't sit back and say they're getting what they deserve for their wrong choices, but offer what help we can to lift them out of that cruel poverty. And when we meet chaotic lives, we shouldn't criticise, but graciously offer time or a listening ear or the patience that will keep them in relationship, keep them going. And yes, and when we meet ignorance of God that's seen in promoting ways of living that are harmful, maybe even oppressive to us. Well, we shouldn't get all defensive and angry, but give them what they need, the truth of the generous, gracious God in the gospel of his son, the grace that rescued us from our sinful ignorance. God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace, saved by the grace that makes the first last and the last first, the wonderful, rich, generous, eternal, 
grace of God our Father. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your great mercy that we would know the truth in our hearts of this word, that you are the God who is rich in mercy and have loved us with a great love. We pray whatever our circumstances, that truth would be borne home to us by your spirit deep in our hearts. And Father, we pray that knowing your generous love and grace, we would never be grumblers, but always people who can give you thanks and who can rejoice in, delight in your generous kindness to others, knowing that same kindness will bring us to eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name.